Well, the intense admiration and respect for the Queen has been on full show in Australia, even, it must be said, particularly, you might say, among staunch Republicans. Did you see Malcolm Turnbull was reduced to tears on the weekend? Uh, and indeed, some generous words from people personally who struggle with the ugly legacy of colonialism in this country. And on that point, there was this extraordinary editorial in the New York Times last week. It was by a nuanced and interesting scholar. She's a full professor of history at Harvard, no less. And the headline read, Mourn the Queen, Not Her Empire. And it helped that Professor Maya Jasanoff genuinely acknowledged what she called the Queen's profound and sincere commitment to her duties because it sort of gave her the room to go on and state very plainly that the Queen's presence helped obscure the bloody history and ugliness of empire. So with the passing of her madge, it seems a reckoning is due, even though everyone keeps saying it's too soon, about the part that the royal family played in the history of slavery and racism and exploitation. Professor Jasanoff joins me now. Thank you for joining us, Maya. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I I noticed somewhere, what did they call you, the Times? There was a word that they used about you and they were terribly upset that you'd written this article, which I thought was very balanced. And you were, you were at pains to say um, she'd done a terrific job and she'd done a duty and so on. But they really did get very upset. Why do you think that was? Well, yes, that was quite striking. The piece was taken up um, by the British right-wing press, which perhaps shouldn't be so much of a surprise. <laughs> I've got two hit pieces in the Daily Mail already. Um, but so somewhat more of a surprise, I think, was that it was taken up by the American right-wing media, uh, Breitbart, Daily Caller, and a six-minute monologue on Tucker Carlson's show <laughs> on Fox News, defending the British Empire as the most humane empire there ever was. Right. So, you know, that left me, uh, you know, bemused because uh, as... Anyone who follows American politics will know the viewers of uh, Fox News or uh, right-wing, generally uh, Trump supporters who see themselves, I think, as fitting into the traditions of American revolutionaries. They wave flags <laughs> saying, don't tread on me. They, That's in the know, name. It's in the name, yeah. Maya. Republicans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yes, although, of course, as you know, it has a very different valence here. But yes. Bear with me. So, so yeah, no, so it's a funny situation. I mean, that we have the American right uh, at once Republican and uh, <laughs> and apparently monarchist. So go figure. Yes, uh, but I think you know repugnant. Repugnant was the word that was used. But I mm. I, I do think that it, it's interesting to consider how you might separate the Queen. Uh, herself and her duty, which you were very, you know, you took some some uh, time to um, pay your respects to the service that she'd given from um, what she represents and the institution she represents. And is it possible to actually do that? One of our authors here in Australia wrote, she did so much for Britain, we are told, but had nothing to do with anything Britain did. Yeah. Well, that's a very nicely put 
phrase, I think. I mean, you know, look, she she herself, you know, as she expressed in interviews throughout her life, was was fully aware of the completely anomalous position that she was in as being both an individual and a, an institution. And one of the things that I have been so struck by in the last couple of days is seeing the pageantry that, that really is undergirded by hundreds of years of tradition, which makes Britain the only nation left in Western Europe and, and, and you know, probably much of the world that that sustains a set of sort of, if you will, old regime ways um, into the 21st century. Um, and there's a, you know, I admit I'm a I'm a historian of Britain who is very interested in the ways that uh, long. Uh, institutions can provide a sense of identity and unity and indeed stability, uh, despite you know uh, the, the 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 cut and thrust of of politics and, and social change. But there is a definite kind of oddity about the fact that there's these sort of thousands of years or hundreds of years of tradition behind an individual who is herself an individual who is, you know, the mm. occupying the, the span and the parameters of an ordinary human life. So she, in, she inherits and she sort of sustains this imperial monarchy by assuming the title of the head of the Commonwealth. And she really breathed life into that notion of the Commonwealth. And what you're writing about in the Times was, don't think that by 1952, when she comes to the throne, that colonialism and oppression is over. She was in Kenya at the time, and they were right in the middle of that state of emergency in which they were putting down the anti-colonial movement and putting uh, people, Kenyans, into detention camps. Precisely. You know, I've seen a number of lines um, make the rounds in the last couple of days, which I think capture why I felt that it was so important just to state certain things. Um, One of them is the idea that the Queen uh, was the queen of a post-colonial world and that the British Empire was over, which as you've just, you know, nicely pointed out, it absolutely was not. And the other is that, uh, the, the British Empire was, uh, was sort of given up with scarcely any bloodshed. It was all very peaceful, et cetera, et cetera, which again is simply not true. I mean, you know, it's, um, it, it, it is the case that uh, there are a number of nations, dozens, that have joined the Commonwealth and have enjoyed through that connections of trade and culture and education and sport. Um, but, you know, the, the passage from British imperial rule to the Commonwealth as it has come to be known in recent decades it w- was by no means um, seamless or without bloodshed. And I find it uh, quite quite striking the degree to which in Britain itself in particular, the actual facts of the history of empire and its dissolution remain very little known. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, you began this interview by saying, okay, so the Queen acknowledged this and gave great service and and presented herself from the beginning as, the, as a servant. And at the time of the Jubilee, she just uh, earlier this year, was it, or last year, I can't remember, who knows what time it is in COVID, Maya, she signed her, <laughs> she signed her statement to her people, your servant Elizabeth. So she couched herself in that way, but you're saying she was aware of the contradictions of that. But there again, William and Kate arrive in the Caribbean and are absolutely shocked that, it, that, that there would be this modern um, 
concern, distress, fury, uh, demands for apology and reparations because they are living with the legacy of it. Just explain that connection over history and why those individuals are grappling so much with post-imperialism because of the legacy of all these things that went on. Well, I would perhaps draw out two strands from your question. One of them is simply why are William and Kate surprised not to be received with open arms uh, in 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 relation to perhaps their own personal expectations? Royal tours have been going on for for generations. It was in Queen Victoria's reign that you know her children became great sort of um, traveling emissaries, as it were, for the uh, for the empire and this only accelerated in the 20th century. And those tours, as you will know, in Australia were typically accompanied with a good deal of performance and deference. But, and but some this of one was different. Seeing... This one was William, exactly. William and yes. Kate, William standing in military uniform, white military uniform, Absolutely. like a colonial military, on the back of a, of a jeep driving past exactly black faces. Right. Like yes. what part and of so... that was going to work? Well, so the thing that's so striking is that because of these decades and decades of deference on these tours, the royal handlers expected to have the same reaction. So, you know, it just shows something, I think, about the, you know, what happens when we say things like, oh, it's too soon to talk about such and such. You know, it allows these ideas to, to persist. The, the second thing to say here, I think, is just the sort of reality of what's going on. I mean, you know, in the last uh, particularly decade, although the talk has been going on for longer, there has been an increasingly uh, consolidated, coherent, and well-argued case put forward by CARICOM um, to demand reparations for the history of slavery. Um, and um, and this, I think, you know, is the sort of thing that might fruitfully be taken up in one form or another in Commonwealth meetings. Um, but the, the kind of social underpinnings behind it that include, for instance, Barbados declaring itself a republic are, uh, are clearly um, not fully recognized by uh, by the British, by the monarchy, the people who organize these things. Partly, I think, because the level, as I keep returning to, the legal, level of uh, amnesia and ignorance in Britain about the realities of empire continues to be quite staggering. Mm. Okay, and that's not the same in the Caribbean. There's been years of scholarship since 1952 when the Queen came to the throne about um, what actually went on, what the last King Charles did in order to facilitate the trade in human beings from Africa. But what I'm also interested in is the extent to which those people look Look at the Windrush scandal in the UK, which is people coming from the Caribbean in the 60s and 70s and 50s and saying, well, we're told we're British subjects, we don't need a visa. And then years later, people saying, well, you're illegal immigrants. What does that do to your sense of, hang on, we thought we were the imperial family? Well, it certainly wrecks it. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a, there have been a number of things in, in, in the last few years that have um, you know, helped sort of put paid to the uh, idea that Britain has been this benevolent uh, post-colonial power. And the Windrush scandal was one. Um, another was the revelation of all of the archival documents that had been hidden by uh, the the British state um, that that docu that that 
uh, chronicled some of the abuses that were being conducted during, for instance, the the Kenya emergency. Um, and these were revealed only in the course of a lawsuit brought by survivors of, of uh, the Mau Mau rebellion uh, against the British government, which they won. Uh, and in winning that victory and earning some, some reparations uh, and an apology, um, they also were instrumental in helping to reveal some of the truth of what happened. Okay, Mo, but let's think about this another way. There are 14 countries in the world now, including Australia, New Zealand and Canada, three in the Pacific, one Belize in Central America and the others are in the Caribbean. That's it, 14 overseas territories. And the Brits have always said, Australia, if you would like to become a republic, that is your choice and, you know, (laughs) they'll let us go, Maya. (laughs) So who needs the reckoning, them or us? Oh, they need the reckoning. <laughs> I think, you know, my sense is that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a familiar, um, you know, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of the debate in Australia as it is right now. But, you know, I don't think that the, that the citizens of Jamaica or Barbados or St. Lucia, you know, need a reckoning with the legacies of empire. I think the British need it. And I think that that reckoning has been, um, you know, well, what, what do we mean by the term reckoning? I mean, you know, people in former British colonies have been living with the legacy uh, in ways that have materially affected their circumstances. Um, and people in Britain um, have uh, managed to sort of ignore um, many of the realities of both the colonial and the post-colonial world. So, you know, I hope that after the Queen's death and this whole idea that, oh, we needed to not talk about things while she was still alive, et cetera, Mm. et cetera, that now, you know, there will be an opportunity for these kinds of discussions that have been happening, as I say, ever more vigorously um, to, to make a bit of a dent um, in the British public conversation and indeed in policy. Now, we have less than a minute left. Um, so just tell me briefly, what do you think? Is Charles up to the job? After all, he's going to crown Camilla with the core in crown with the 100-carat diamond in the middle of it, stolen from the Indian nation. <laughs> You know, I think he may be. I mean, that is, I think that uh, he has been watching through these decades Mm -hmm. from the sidelines, knowing very well what's coming. And my hunch is that the fundamental interest of these people is in sustaining the monarchy and that Charles will recognize that the way to do that, and I'm sure he believes this also to be the right thing to do, Mm -hmm. is going to be to modernize things, to open up and to pave the way for his son to have a, a successful and hopefully for him a longer reign. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for the article you wrote and for the nuanced conversation you've helped lead tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Maya Jasanoff, Professor of History at Harvard University, and you're on LNL, and I'm Ellen in the LNL, Ellen Fanning. G'day, potties. If you'd like to learn from history's mistakes as much as we do here at LNL, or you want the whole backstory on the big issues in the news, check out Rear Vision on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.